0: The uh, colloquialism or expression taking one's lumps uh, started to be used in the 1930s. There were sports writers that covered boxing matches, and the individual that was in the match and that was taking a beating, taking his lumps, but somehow persevered, somehow was resilient. Sport writer, sports writers thought, what a better way to explain it than to say, this guy's really taking his lumps. But he persevered and he won the match. It's an expression that's carried away even to this day. Actually, I used it uh, a while ago um, in my apartment at 3.30 in the morning. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Um, See, my wife and I have three kids, as Dave mentioned. They're uh, they're all three under four years old, so you get a little bit of a taste of what our house is like. Uh, And Julie became sick with the flu. And, um, at the at the outset I was doing all the things that was Julie, Julie was doing juggling my work Responsibilities in the evenings and for a while. I just said, you know, I've got to take take my lumps This is just what I've got to do and And then unfortunately Julie's flu morphed into a pneumonia and days turned into weeks and I found myself on the floor of our small apartment in Madrid Spain pacing back and forth with a shrieking 14 month Uh, baby on my shoulder saying take your lumps Chad take your lumps and then one of my four-year-olds in the bedroom next uh, next to me started to cry put down the shrieking baby I go feel the forehead of my four-year-old sure enough burning up fever now Julie's on her back pneumonia she can barely move in the other room and then our neighbor from downstairs takes a broomstick We live in a multi-layered apartment complex. And he starts hitting the the floor underneath and said, you Americans, you just need to get out of here. And I thought, you know what? I can't take this long. Uh, And all of a sudden I felt um, the resolve slipping away into doubt and despair. See, my wife, Julie, and I, we are intentional about... um, what we feel God has called us to seeking to pursue the advance of the gospel in, in Madrid Spain But you know and many of you have been involved in some of the what we see out in the in the fair and the foyer Ministries for a number of years, but you know what those of you that are really committed to the Lord and his work And the advance of the gospel, you know as well as I know That ministry always isn't walking on a cloud there are hard things. There's an intersection between life on mission, intentionality, and difficult. Is there not? And I want to know the, question, the answer to the question, how do we keep the resolve of, got to take our lumps for the Lord and keep pursuing mission when the going gets tough? Mark the Gospel of Mark in many ways is are various stories of m- people intentional on mission. If you take a look at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1 and verse 2. You'll see right away there's someone sent on a mission. Who is that someone? A messenger. See, God speaking to the Son of God says, I will send My messenger before you and He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is something of a of a ministry hero right he's sent on a mission and he fulfills the mission right away in verses 3 and 4 he's faithful to proclaim repentance of sins he he has a following all around Jerusalem people are flocking to hear his his presentation they're repenting they're being baptized there's this new remnant of Israel preparing for the coming one john 's something of a missionary or of a, a ministry rock star he 's living life intentionally on mission, and then Jesus comes and we know the story is really about Jesus, right the Son of God. We read in chapter chapter one verse one that this story is about the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and and it 's not surprising that when Je- when John passes the baton to Jesus. The trajectory of the ministry just skyrockets in verse 9. After he's baptized, he preaches the arrival of the kingdom of God. He preaches, he teaches, he casts out demons. He outwits his opponents. Where are the demons in all of this? Where is Satan and his minions? They're off cowering somewhere in a corner, licking their wounds. If we read chapter 5, we know that they're at the bottom of the sea, surrounded by pig carcasses. Jesus is victorious so it's this up 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 trajectory of two agents sent by God on a mission and then all of a sudden chapter 6 the wheels come off and I want to take a look at the passage of this intersection of mission and suffering I want to take a look at Mark chapter 6 starting in verse 14 and we're going to see how the wheels come off for John the Baptist All the while answering this question that I needed to know at 3.30 in the morning in my apartment, when the neighbor was hitting the the floor below me, how do I keep taking my lumps? How do I be resilient? Mark chapter 6, verse 14, Jesus has just sent out his disciples, another group of agents on mission, Right? Verses 7-13, to and then the wheels come off in verse 14. King Herod, who's Herod Antipas, heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, He's Elijah. And others said, He's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. We don't understand the gravity of these verses if we read them in isolation, but think about the trajectory of the story as I've just described it for you. All of a sudden, we, the reader, are in the quarters of Herod, listening in on his musings about the ministry of the disciples of Jesus. And what do we hear in verse 14? John the Baptist is dead. Talk about the wheels coming off. I thought this was up, 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 up life on mission. God's agents sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now we look at verse 16, and we're even a little bit more befuddled. Herod said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I don't know about you, but I think of someone being beheaded, and it immediately draws my attention back to 2014 when ISIS was doing some of its... um, Um, Work and just hearing about, just reading about that just makes you sick to your stomach. It turns your stomach. But this is a man of God. Sent on a mission. And he's been beheaded. Maybe, just maybe, if we continue to read on, we'll be able to put together some of the pieces of this puzzle. Perhaps we'll be able to see in the coming verses that this works itself out a little bit like the Joseph story familiar with the Joseph story in Genesis, the Old Testament? Very brief summary is that Joseph is betrayed by his own brothers. He's sold into slavery. Treated poorly as a slave. Tossed into a dungeon. This man man of God. For years, suffers. And then the end of the story, what's the end of the story? He's raised up miraculously by God through visions and through his connection to Pharaoh. And he looks back at everything that just occurred and he's he's able to say in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, do you know this verse? Talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, he's able to put the pieces together in the past and say, ah, 2020 vision looking back. Maybe this story, maybe this story will put together some of the pieces. And the answer will be, ah, the connection between mission and suffering is God's sovereignty. So let's read the story and see. Verses 17 to 29. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles. And military commanders and the leading men of Galilee for when Herodias daughter came in and danced she pleased Herod and his guests and the king said to the girl ask for me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you and when he vowed to her whatever you ask me I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom she went out and said to her mother what should I ask and the mother said or she said the head of John the Baptist and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother when his disciples heard of it they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb so sliding the pieces together of this narrative and seeing a little bit more of the puzzle of the bigger picture you know what we come face to face with the reality of evil we're asked to sit just a while, just a while, and pause over the reality of disgusting, despicable, inhumane evil. It's a little bit like watching uh, um, this genre, or the the turn and the tone in the story is a little bit like watching a CSI episode, uh, Crime Scene Investigators there are these television programs that, um, at the beginning of the show, there's a murderer. And we might even, as the viewer, get a glimpse of the villain, the killer. And then they leave, and who shows up? The crime scene, crime scene investigation team. They have all these resources at their hands, they're looking under every crack, crag and crevice for, for evidence, for clues, they have DNA. Um, That they check and of course the objective is to get the villain in the end I'd like us to consider ourselves just for a moment in this passage as crime Theological crime scene investigators because this is a crime, right? It's evil And I want us to continue to ask the question as we analyze how do we square? This hero sent on a mission from God on mission face-to-face with evil so, as we read in the details of the story, verse 18, we see John the Baptist not only preached Jesus, the one coming after him, he also preached against sin. It's a little bit like a pastor today preaching against the unapologetic, illicit lifestyle of a politician. You can imagine how polarizing that would be. Well, what did it cost John? His freedom. So we know, through this clue, that John's in prison for preaching against sin. But there's also another um, suspect, and that suspect is is Herod Antipas' illegitimate lover. We read in verse 19 that she wants blood. She wants vengeance. She's not content, as Herod Antipas is, to just see him rot away in a prison cell and bring him out once in a while for these interesting talks. No, she wants blood. So we've got two suspects, right? Theological crime scene investigators. And another clue pops up in verse 21 that's really interesting. Take a look at verse 21. An opportunity came. I like what the NASB says here in its translation. A strategic day, a strategic day came okay so think about that for just a second a strategic day but for whom for John the Baptist as we read the rest of the story we know no that's not the answer to the question for whom for Herod the strategic day we learn about is for Herodias you see Herodias probably knew a few things about her her lover Herod she knew that he had a couple of weaknesses and those weaknesses were alcohol and women So what does she do? I think she sets up up the scenario of her daughter coming in. She knows her husband is throwing, or her lover is throwing this party, this with with alcoholic beverages, almost certainly. and And she sends in her daughter to dance, probably in a sensual way. And she thinks, you know, he's just foolish enough to promise something ridiculous. And look at verse 23. What happens? The strategic day came for, why? He promises up to half of his kingdom. So this is why verse 21 is so important. It's a strategic day for Herodias. The young girl, young girl comes back to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And the strategic day is complete. I want the head of John the Baptist. Interesting detail in the text. We learn a little bit about this young girl's character. She goes back in and she adds the nice detail of head of John the Baptist on a platter. We, the reader, are forced in verses 26 and 27, as if this whole story wasn't bad enough, to watch as the executioner is sent away. John is killed. His head is brought on a food platter and this young girl takes it to the witch end of the story verse 28 the disciples come in and they have to take the body away no mention of his head they just have the corpse that's the details of this text it's gruesome You see, the author Mark is making us, forcing us, obliging us to sit in the gruesome details of life on mission at the intersection of suffering. Human evil is real. When you live life intentionally for Jesus, you're going to come face to face with it. We're meant to feel the presence of evil as the guillotine falls, feel revulsion as John is served. You know what? I think it's so interesting that all throughout this paragraph, God isn't mentioned once. We don't even hear John the Baptist's opinion. Oh, it would have been nice to hear what he said before he died. Nothing. That's why I'm saying I think that this text is intentional to get us to sit just a while in the Depth of human evil But we don't like messiness do we We're getting a little uncomfortable As Americans Why? Well you know Americans are really good at avoiding Sidestepping Sugarcoating Walking around I am guilty of this myself Evil My, wife, my, uh, my mom Had um, uh, Cancer A couple of years ago And so Julie and I flew home to be with my mom as she was entering into chemotherapy. And uh, I found it fascinating to just observe, sort of as a re-entry into the American culture, how everyone found me an incredible excuse to not talk about the C word. They would say to my mom, oh, aren't you thrilled? Your son came all the way from Spain to be with you during these During this time and smiles and happy and isn't it fantastic that your boy is here And I couldn't help but think as they were sidestepping the real the reality that I wanted to know about like what are my mom's chances? I couldn't help but think wow we're really good At sidestepping sugarcoating walking around dancing around Conversations that deal with the depths of of uh, suffering and evil Aren't we? Well, this passage, which is often oftentimes skipped over by pastors as they're working through the Gospel of Mark, says, hold on a minute, life on mission, there's an intersection with suffering and we have to face it for a moment. Why is this so important? So many people enter into ministry and they sign up, enthusiastic, and that's great, and they're thinking John the Baptist in chapter 1. The John the Baptist of chapter 1 is pretty cool, right? Who wouldn't want to be the John the Baptist of chapter 1? Except for maybe the whole eating locust thing and dressing like weirdo. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to be John the Baptist? The people are flocking to his message. They're repenting. He's baptizing. He gets to point the way to Jesus, the Son of God. It's incredible, right? But you know what? We can't divide the John the Baptist of chapter 1 from the John the Baptist of chapter 6. Who doesn't even get a word in edgewise? I remember watching a documentary um, on World War II and uh, they, at the time, I think it was uh, filmed maybe 30 years ago, a lot of World War II veterans were still alive and they were talking about their experiences and some of the worst battles of, of the war. They faced trials and difficulties and and pain like none of us have even scratched the surface of that kind of of that kind of evil, right? But you know what I heard over and over again in their interviews? I heard the following sentence, more or less. Our sergeant prepared us for this. We knew we were getting into tough stuff. We knew it would be difficult. We weren't taken off guard. We weren't surprised by it. Friends, if God gets a hold of your life and he redeems you to live life on purpose as a missionary, whether that's in your Judea or Samaria or to the ends of the earth, God gets a hold of you, there is an intersection. You can't have John the Baptist of chapter 1 and not have John the Baptist of chapter 6. We're meant to feel it. But you know what? I'm thankful that the story of the Gospel of Mark, and specifically chapters like this, paragraphs like this, are never meant to be read in total isolation, right? They're always looking forward to what's to come. You see, John the Baptist's mission and his death foreshadow something. What does it foreshadow in the story? It's pointing ahead to Jesus, right? So I want us to take a look at just a few of the details of the rest of the story. Where is Mark taking us? In Mark chapter 8, verse 28, the disciples are conversing with Jesus. And Jesus has asked him, who do the people say that I am? And they start to speculate. And we hear his name again, John the Baptist, right? Some people say you're John the Baptist, resurrected. It serves as a perfect segue to Jesus' first passion prediction. And then after the passion prediction in verse 34, we get another interesting uh, instruction section so chapter 8 let's look down at verse 34 And calling the crowd to him with his disciples he said to them if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me whoever would save his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it what is it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul Look carefully at verse 35. Why in the blazes would anyone even think about pursuing life on mission like John the Baptist with that kind of an outcome? Why? Come on, I know you were asking it. I ask it all the time. Because you gain life. Everything. Everything. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And how can we know that we've gained life? Well, that's because Jesus himself limped up a hill with a cross on his back. And as he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, describing himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, I want you to imagine for a moment your life as a slave to sin. You as a slave to sin in a cage bound to sin and the devil. And the only way that you're getting out of the cage is by grace through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He paid the price that only he could pay to rescue you. See, the whole rest of the story is working on this trajectory towards Jesus. And the cross gives us life, forgiveness of sins, freedom, liberation from the power of the devil, and sin. What else does it give us? Chapter 15. This is where the story is headed. This is what John's death foreshadows. So Jesus is dying on the cross. He's breathing his last breath. And what happens at the cross? Chapter 15 Verse 37 and jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and The curtain of the temple was torn in two From top to bottom now. This is the temple probably of the holy of holies Separating the holy of holies from the most holy place in the temple in the first century and what did that represent? What did Jesus last breath? The earthquake and the tearing of the temple curtain represent it represented access to a relationship with the Creator God of the universe. This is what the cross is accomplishing for the believer. Why in the world would anyone pursue life on mission? Because we have life, we have liberation, we're emancipated, and we have access. In a personal relationship With the creator God of the universe For eternity So no John's story isn't meant to be read in isolation It's a pause to look at the realities And the depths Of evil And I think as we pull the curtain back a little bit further In chapter 6 We also see the silhouette Of Satan as well Just a couple of of details back in chapter 6 that I forgot to mention earlier. Chapter 6. In verse 17, Herod sends for the executioner. Who is the only other figure in the whole story that sends in relationship to John the Baptist? God in chapter 1 verse 2 he does that in verse 17 and verse 27 and then over and over again in the story also interesting details king and kingdom look at verses 14 22 23 25 well that's too fast sorry 14 22 23 25 and it continues on that Herod is the king. You know, that's why that's so uncomfortable for us as we're reading the story Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God has arrived. We know that he's the king So we're asked to pull the curtain back and realize hey, there's evil here. There's the depths of evil. There's even Satan our ultimate foe Working pulling strings behind the scenes, but you know what as the story points forward Satan is conquered at the cross. His worst lie that he can deceive us with in relation to our standing with God is vanquished at the cross. So yes, we prepare for hard things, we acknowledge evil. We even pause in it sometimes. I think it's necessary like a good soldier to prepare ourselves for the reality of evil and mission on su- mission at the interface of suffering. But we linger over the cross. We linger over the life-giving, freedom-bringing, even access to God himself work at the cross. So imagine imagine me once again at 3.30 in the morning pacing back and forth in my apartment. One of the first things that I did, um, you know, I don't always do this, but was I said, you know what? I signed up for this. And I knew because my mission trained me well that there's an intersection for a life intentional, lived on mission, John the Baptist of chapter one with, you know what? The depths of human evil and suffering, John the Baptist of chapter six. I signed up for this. But if I would have hung out there too long, like so many other times, I would give up. Where do I need to stay? Where does my sweet spot need to be? The cross. I need to linger over the cross. Some of you have maybe just entered into um, some interesting seasons of ministry where you're getting for the first time the taste of criticism that can be so biting. Oh man, I thought everybody liked me. Ouch. And it's so easy, is it not? To say, I'll take my lumps, I'll take my lumps. And then that to slide into despair and doubt and a kind of attitude that says, you know what, I'm done. How do you hang on? Where does your sweet spot need to be? It has to be the cross. The cross gives us everything. For the believer, we have everything. We have life, access to God, redemption. Perhaps an illustration would help. I don't know if you remember in the 1990s, there was this fad called Magic Eye. Uh, I do. I remember walking around American malls and just being fascinated because there were these groups of people huddled around these storefront windows and they were like this. They were staring into the magic eye portraits. Um, I remember my brother, too, had a pamphlet. What what they were is they were these, for those that don't know, they were these 2D 2D portraits of like repetitive patterns, little dots. And if you stared at it long enough, this 3D image or portrait opened up to you. It was pretty cool. For those of us that could see, others of us were like, ah, that was lame, I never saw it. Um, But... I remember my brother handed me a pamphlet with one of the advertisements for Magic Eye and it was staring at the picture and he was like, Chad, don't stare at that. That's an advertisement. You'll never see anything. Oh, I thought, well, that's lame. But when I went to the store, the 3D portrait opened up. Many times, when we face trials and difficulties, where do we hang out? We hang out in, oh man, that's hard. Oh man, that criticism is biting. Oh, this isn't what I signed up for. And we hang out there a little too long and you know what it's like? It's like staring at a 2D portrait or a pamphlet portrait of magic eye. But when we turn our eyes and linger over the cross, the 3D image of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, for the believer in Jesus Christ, opens up to us and we go, ah, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And the portrait is so magnificent, the Spirit of God, when He opens your eyes to it, you think, I can do this. God can do it through me. In the 1940s, um, there were some missionaries by the name of Bill and Flossie Simmons. I met their son the other day at a conference, and he told me this whole story, and I wanted to share it with you. So 1940s in the 1940s, we've just won the war and there was this new radical missions movement a number of missionaries went out with our with our mission and The Simmons went with a team to plant churches in the southwestern corner of China now think late 1940s China what else is going on at that time? first Year and a half of their ministry. They see a church planted they form Mar- remarkable relationships and even appoint an elder in the church and then the communist revolution begins so communist office officers enter into their life on mission they take the elder of the church they drag him out into the square and they kill him in cold blood and they say this individual has been commiserating with those Americans 18 months in How in the world did Bill and Flossie not just say, Uh, I'm done. The cross. They lingered over the cross. They were driven by the cross and all that it accomplished for them through the power of the spirit. A few years later, they found themselves. They were kicked out of the country. They found themselves in the Philippines. Three weeks into the, uh, into the ministry in the region where they were serving, in the Philippines, um, Bill came down with polio. He's like, we're here, we're ready to plant the church, ah, on his back. His daughter, in the hospital, had a 107 degree fie- fever. This is the intersection of mission and suffering, is it not? 107 degree fever, she may die. He doesn't know where she is in the hospital. His wife, physical fatigue, can't take it. She collapses. She's moved into another room. Can you imagine? The devil's attacks to say, come on. When's enough enough? When is enough enough? They had long gone, probably moved away from taking my lumps, taking my lumps his testimony is that he's driven by the cross the magnificent thing about this story is three filipino men walk into his hospital room they come and visited him he can't even move on his side he's in such pain and they say we know jesus we've come to know jesus and we heard that you're here to plant a church and we want to partner with you so god was at work it's all god's work right and this formed the bonds of a relationship that would last, two, span two generations. Dozens of people coming to Christ, churches planted. And what did Bill and Flossie Simmons do? <laughs> they were faithful to go in life on mission, but they were flat on their backs. And guess what? They hung on because of the cross. And God worked. I love this story because it's two broken vessels. This is all we are, right? We're just broken vessels saying, God, help me, use me. I want to be intentional about serving you and advancing the gospel in my Jerusalem, in my my Judea, my Samaria, wherever you send me. And I've planned for suffering, but the cross gives me everything.